The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. The safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition, said Alfred North Whitehead, is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. We've all heard the name of Plato and his famous mentor Socrates, and most of us have encountered the dialogues, a literary philosophical form that he essentially invented. We know the themes he advanced, his general views of metaphysics, and his interest in knowledge and its importance as a virtue. He was the patron saint of epistemology, of examining what we know and how we know it through the useful tool of knowing nothing, but knowing that you know nothing. It's said that every wave of philosophers since Plato has been inspired by him in one way or another. But what do we know about Plato the man? How did this person come to write works that would be read and wrestled with more than 2,000 years later? And how do Plato's literary skills help to deepen his arguments and enrich his narratives? We're looking at Plato today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Plato! What a treat today, man. I feel like we're climbing a mountain together on this part of our journey. Charles Dickens, whoever thought we'd top that. But then, John Milton. Another tier altogether. And just when you think you can go no higher, we come to Plato. We are up here in the clouds today. Maybe it's perfection we're chasing. Plato's the right person to be talking about the ideal forms, of course. We'll get to that. Plato's achievement and his influence really cannot be overstated. He has no peer in literary philosophy, which is a category I just sort of made up. You could say that there were better writers of literature. You could point to a Shakespeare, for example, but they have not been as influential in the field of philosophy. And you could Say there were maybe not better philosophers, but at least a few who might be in Plato's League. Kant, David Hume, Aristotle, certainly. I've seen Aquinas named in that group. But none of those people surpassed Plato as an artist. Plato would have been an excellent novelist or a playwright. The novel form wasn't available to him, of course. Poetry was, though, and in fact, there's a story that he wrote poetry as a young man which he then gave up after meeting his great inspiration, Socrates. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. A quick note to update you on the podcast, Where Things Stand. Mike Palindrome is still in Europe, roaming through the halls of the Nobel Prize Committee in Stockholm, among other places. But don't worry, he'll be back soon. Some other news is that we've seen a spike in traffic which is wonderful. I wanted to thank everyone who's been listening and leaving positive feedback on iTunes and elsewhere and recommending the show to your friends. I'm glad to have you all on board. And my favorite gift of all, those emails where people tell me about the circumstances, where they're listening to the show. I get such a kick out of that. It's a reminder that life, human life, is happening in so many different places around the globe. As always, I feel honored to be along for the ride. Here's one I received from Rachel. Subject, 
La Vida Nuova. Thank you. Dear Jack Wilson, Firstly, I would like to thank you for your podcast. I listen to it on my commute to work each day, which I would like to tell you about briefly. I live in southern England, and each day I drive along the small countryside roads that take me around the rough edges of ancient moorland. The seasons make great changes on the moorland, which turns so abruptly from the wet fern green of spring to the wet burnt orange of autumn. It is always wet up there despite the sun, which does occasionally shine despite what they say about England. And as I watch these changes happen and ignore the urge to get out of the car and immerse myself in the peaty earth, your podcast remains a constant sigh of relief to me. I recently listened to your podcast on La Vida Nuova, and I wanted to let you know that I have added this to the reading list I keep for my daughter. She is three at the moment, and I collect great literature to give to her on certain birthdays as she grows. So thank you for your gift of La Vida Nuova that I will give to her to read when she reaches 17. I am lucky enough to work with books. And here, Rachel describes where she works. And I often recount my long days of reading during my master's in English criticism and theory at Exeter University. But in these current days of full-time work and parenting, it is your podcast that brings up the desire to drop whatever it is I do during my wakeful hours and instead pick up the books you have been discussing. Thank you again, and may you have a happy, peaceful rest of the summer. Warmest. Rachel. There we go. I love this email. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm so glad to hear you've been enjoying the show out there on the rough edges of ancient Moorland. I wish I were there too. Such a great landscape. So beautiful and so thought-provoking. Spent a bit of time there myself, and I hope to see that corner of the planet again soon. And what a great idea for a parent and a young daughter. Build that little storehouse of treasure for her, that literary treasure chest. Over time, she will be a lucky 17-year-old to get such a gift. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. You can also find us at historyofliterature.com, facebook.com slash historyofliterature, and jackwilson.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash literature and historyofliterature.com slash shop. Okay, enough selling fish. Let's get started with Plato. We'll have his story after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Plato was born, probably in 428 BCE, into a wealthy and politically connected Athenian family. The family's origins are important here, especially when we start talking about Plato's political theories, which today have become somewhat controversial. In short, Plato has always been admired, even revered for his philosophical dialogues and other writings. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Plato is philosophy, and philosophy, Plato. That's the kind of esteem we're talking about. Nietzsche, when it came time to upend Western civilization, expressed his disdain for two figures, Jesus Christ, the embodiment of the Christian tradition that alienated Nietzsche, and Socrates, who stood for everything else Nietzsche didn't like. Plato has been called the gateway drug to all philosophy. You urge him on your fellow citizens and watch the effects on their mind. Their addiction grows and they eventually move on to harder stuff. The good news is that, at least in my opinion, this is not a bad addiction to have, an addiction to philosophy. It helps wake you up. It leaves no ill effects, and it makes your life better rather than worse. At least that's my experience. It's also an experience Socrates would share. The unexamined life, he famously said, is not worth living. And we're already mixed up in Socrates and Plato and his influences and his greatness, and I was trying to give you a sense of Plato the man first. <sighs> Plato is a big topic, so let's take things in order. First, I want to talk about Plato's life and the particular circumstances of Athens, the Athens in which he was born and raised. Then I'll talk about his writings. I'll discuss his philosophy enough to give you a taste of his major themes and interests, but I really want to focus on Plato as literature, if I can. There are many, many podcasts out there that are devoted to philosophy, and I'm sure they've all done an episode or a hundred on Plato. <laughs> if you want a deep dive into Plato's views on, say, love or knowledge or poetry or justice any of those, you should seek one of those other podcasts out. We're going to stick to the life, the general views and principles of his philosophy, and the literary aspects. And finally, I'm going to circle back to Plato as a historical figure, as a presence in the ongoing dialogue that we have with philosophy and literature. So let's try this again. Plato was born probably in 428 BCE into a wealthy and politically connected family in Athens. What do I mean by politically connected? On his mother's side, his ancestry traced back to Solon, the great giver of laws who had lived 200 years before. His father's family claimed they were descended from the god Poseidon. It's an interesting claim tells you something about the family, even if we don't necessarily accept it as truth. Getting back to firmer, factual ground, Plato's stepfather was a friend of the great Athenian general Pericles, who was called the first citizen of Athens by his contemporary, the historian Thucydides. Pericles was a strong advocate of Athenian democracy, maybe even what we might call a populist today, a man of the people. He promoted literature and the arts, 
He was the leading figure of the period called the Golden Age, that period in between the two long wars, the Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian War, in which Athens battled against Sparta. It is this war, the Peloponnesian War, that is most directly relevant to Plato. It broke out a couple of years before he was born. Pericles, the leader of the generation before his, died the year Plato was born. Plato lived through an Athens at war. And then, when Plato was in his early 20s, Athens was defeated. What happened in defeat? Some of Sparta's allies demanded that Athens should be destroyed and all of its citizens enslaved. Sparta did not go that far. Instead, they set up an oligarchy known as the the Thirty Tyrants. The people of Athens hated this regime, which ruled by cruelty and force and oppression. In eight months, the regime killed 5% of the Athenian population, confiscated property of citizens, and sent supporters of democracy into exile. One of the leading and most violent of the tyrants was a man named Critias, who intersects with our story in a couple of ways. First, he was related to Plato. He was Plato's cousin's mother. And second, he was also an associate of the man who came to dominate Plato's life and thinking, the enigmatic philosopher and teacher named Socrates. The connection would later have consequences for Socrates. Socrates was born in 470 BCE, which made him about 40 years older than Plato. He was an actual historical figure. We know he existed, but our accounts come mainly from secondary sources. He himself didn't write anything, or at least anything that we have, not his teachings or any kind of letters or lecture notes or memoirs. Everything we know comes from a few third-party sources, and these are sometimes contradictory. A few of these are contemporaneous. By far the most prominent depiction comes from Plato, though here's where we run into some issues of motive and identity. Plato's view of Socrates, and in particular of the philosophy of Socrates, has come to dominate our picture of Socrates. But Plato was himself a man of genius, and it's not at all clear where Socrates ends and Plato begins. We can say with confidence that Socrates impressed Plato, that there were aspects of Socrates and his method that dazzled Plato and that he himself turned into dazzling works. But the extent to which these are recollections of actual events, let alone transcriptions of things Socrates actually said, will always be part of the mystery. We don't know what Socrates said. We only know what Plato later had him say. And since Socrates is one of the greatest characters in world literature and Plato one of the greatest writers, well... You can see the dilemma for anyone determined to come down on one side or the other. To credit Socrates as the philosopher and Plato as the gifted note-taker, or to credit Socrates as an inspiration to a man who then invented something far greater than the historical figure he knew and listened to. It's better to just appreciate the mystery. Two geniuses overlapped. We have the dialogues as a result. We can appreciate the dialogues themselves, and give both men a kind of shared credit. And even better, the mystery deepens the philosophy. But I'll get to that later. By some accounts, Plato studied and wrote poetry as a young man, following the tradition of Homer. He met Socrates as a young man. At that point, Plato already had training in philosophical subjects. He had been studying Heraclitus and Pythagoras and Parmenides, 
which gave him some foundation in metaphysics and epistemology. But it was the meeting with Socrates that changed everything. Socrates was interested in what we might call moral philosophy. He was interested in virtue. What is it, and how do we practice it? He had a concept called eudaimonia, which is often translated as happiness, or maybe more accurately, individual flourishing. It asks what we humans are supposed to expect of ourselves, what we want to be, and what we want others to be. What kind of human beings are we? And Socrates, at least in the version handed down to us by Plato, fuses these moral philosophical questions with the metaphysical and epistemological inquiries of the pre-Socratics. The picture we have of Plato at this time is one of a young man following an older man, Socrates, through various settings in Athens. In the dialogues, we see them encountering a wide range of Athenian society, as Socrates meets and discusses philosophical subjects with intellectuals and poets and soldiers and other leading figures. They meet in different locations, sometimes over dinner, sometimes in gardens, and so on. If we take Plato's dialogues as generally accurate, we can only imagine what a heady time this was for him, roughly the equivalent of a college student today who's blessed by finding a guru, a mentor, a worthy person to follow. A genius who is at the height of his powers, not only possessed of knowledge, but in the process of discovering knowledge. And you, the student, have a front row seat. At the same time, we can't forget what Plato was giving up by following Socrates. What does it mean to be a student? To devote your life to this strange man who goes around asking questions while the elders in your family are battling the Spartans and setting the course of the future of Athens. What are you giving up? by not going into politics yourself. And then, when Plato was roughly 24, Athens fell into chaos. They were defeated, the 30 tyrants were installed, and Socrates was ordered by the new government to arrest and kill a distinguished Athenian named Leon, who had committed no crime. You can see the mind of a tyrant here. Take out two leading citizens at once, kill the revered Leon, and were Not positive who he was, but it appears that he may have been the Leon that we know was a former general. And also, at the same time as taking him out, you sully the name of Socrates. Make Socrates take the blame for killing this popular person. Socrates refused. I will not commit an unjust act, he said. I would prefer death. He was going to be punished for disobeying, but before that could happen, The the regime of the Thirty Tyrants collapsed, and Athens fell into chaos again. Leon was put to death anyway. In the end, Socrates only forestalled his own fate by a few years. A new regime arising in the wake of the fall of the Thirty Tyrants distrusted Socrates for having been associated with the Tyrants. Although Socrates reminded them that he had refused to act against Leon, this was not an atmosphere of recognizing the finer points of guilt and innocence. It was guilt by association. Socrates was accused of impiety and was brought to trial in 399 on charges of corrupting the youth, introducing new gods into the city, atheism, and engaging in unusual religious practices. He was about 70 years old now, and Plato was around 30. I've seen it noted that although impiety seems to us like a serious breach of religious freedom today, we need to understand the context of ancient Greece. 
where displeasing the gods might bring destruction and devastation onto your city. It's hard to read the descriptions of the trial and its aftermath, which come to us from Plato, without viewing the accusers of Socrates as being a kind of radical force, the sort of purge we might associate with the French Revolution or, say, Stalin or Mao. These are people who strike us as desperate, who need to control thoughts to maintain their grip on society and power. They're willing to sacrifice an essentially guiltless person, a thinker, for asking tough questions and making everyone feel a little stupid. Socrates is found guilty by a narrow margin. His friends urged him to escape, but he refused to leave on principled grounds. He was executed a month later. This seems to have affected Plato deeply, turning him away from politics and toward a life of the mind, although we can see its impact on his politics even years later. Plato rejected populism. He feared democracy in some extent. At least, that's the picture we get from his famous work, The Republic. And Plato is often accused when, by readers of The Republic of promoting oligarchy or favoring a kind of tyranny. But I think we have to remember, he had seen democracy, maybe at its worst. He had seen a democracy that would rise up and kill the harmless man whom Plato had come to view as a, a teacher, a thinker, maybe even a father. After the death of Socrates, Plato left Athens and spent the next 12 years traveling and studying. He went to Italy and Egypt, among other places, and in each place he sought out the leading philosophical figures of that place and of his time. He was writing now, too. The death of Socrates seemed to have unleashed the floodgates of his creative powers. Most likely, Plato was inspired by the memory of the man and hoping to do him justice, to continue the tradition of his words and his ideas, even as the man himself no longer could. Plato could also canonize him, so to speak, by emphasizing his best qualities and the purity of his principles. We can only guess at Plato's motives, but I'm sure there was at least some part of him that resented the treatment that Socrates had received and took some satisfaction in elevating Socrates to one of the great figures in world literature, on a par with Achilles and Odysseus. Plato turned 40 in Italy, and he returned to Athens soon after. It was here that he spent the next 26 years in a grove of trees about a mile outside of Athens, where he set up a school, which included not only the trees, but gardens, a gymnasium, and shrines. The grove had been named after an ancient hero called Academus, and the school became known as Plato's Academy. And this, my dear listeners, is where our words academic and the academy come from. All because of Plato, who might have been the greatest teacher who ever lived, and whose school, literally the first academy, might have been the greatest school in history. Let's talk for a moment about teaching, because this is one of the greatest teaching chains in history. It's frankly almost beyond belief. Socrates, perhaps the first moral philosopher and one of the greatest thinkers of all time, taught Plato, who may be the greatest philosopher in history. Certainly, he's one of the best, although one of his greatest rivals to that title was himself Plato's student, Aristotle, who entered the academy around 365 when Plato was in his early 60s. Aristotle 
himself, one of the greatest geniuses in history, also did a little teaching. And one of his students was, of course, Alexander of Macedon, whom, whom we also know as Alexander the Great. All he did was conquer the known world by the age of 30, having a run of conquests that puts him in the very upper ranks of successful military commanders of all time. Simply incredible. Has there ever been a chain like that? Even two links in the chain would be remarkable, but to have four? It's astonishing. Back to Plato. He taught for those 26 years. He traveled to Syracuse to serve as the personal tutor for a young ruler of an empire, but this didn't work out very well. He returned to Athens, then took another shot at educating the ruler, and finally came back to Athens. He spent the rest of his life there in Athens, the academy, teaching and writing. He died in 347 BCE, around 75 years of age. He left the academy to his nephew, and it continued as a model for philosophical study until it was finally closed by the Emperor Justinian in 529 AD, or Common Era, if you prefer, almost a thousand years after it had first been founded. Not bad for a school. And of course, Plato's works have lasted even longer and will likely last as long as humans do, if not longer. So let's turn to those works next. We'll have all of that after this. Plato's works are often divided into three periods, early, middle, and late. It's an easy way to talk about his work, which is wide-ranging, and it makes some biographical sense. We know what was happening at each period, or at least there's been speculation that has developed into a kind of logical, common-sense view. And the groupings help to understand Plato's thinking and show a kind of development over time. So, with the caveat that this bit of historical grouping is still not exactly confirmed, we'll follow the tradition. There are also a set of letters, but these are not known to have been Plato's, and some of them that have been attributed to him almost certainly were not his. So we're going to set those aside. They contain some fascinating and suggestive factual nuggets, but since, we've, since we're focused on literature, the literature of Plato, we're going to zero in on his greatest works, which are those philosophical explorations that almost all involve Socrates in one way or another. Notice that I did not say dialogues, since one of the greatest of these, one of my favorites, was not a dialogue, but a speech. The brilliant and spine-tingling speech that Plato has Socrates give after being found guilty by the Athenian court. We'll get to that in a moment. There's an interesting point made by the translator in one of my editions of Plato. He was describing the use of a 19th century translator, Benjamin Jowett. Why it was considered better to update Jowett rather than start from scratch. In some ways, this modern translator said, it would have been easier to start from scratch, to translate everything afresh. But what he admired about Jowett was that he had captured the voices of Plato. Not the voice, singular, but the voices, plural. And it's here that we start to see the genius of Plato, and we see why it's easy to argue that Plato would have been a great novelist had the form been available to him and his audience. Philosophy animates Plato's work, the particular pleasure in trying to get to the bottom of what it means to be human, to live a good life, to set up a good society, to fall in love, to be a good poet, and all of that. 
philosophy has not always been that accessible. Philosophy can go down some obscure paths, can get deep in the weeds. There's some value in that too, but there's something refreshing about taking as the problem something like, what does it mean to be good? How do I live a good life? What should I value? But Plato is more than just a set of interesting problems with a few suggested answers. Plato sets a scene, sometimes with a quick bit of scene setting, sometimes just through the dialogue itself, so that you feel like you are in the room with the people who are hammering out the questions and the answers to the questions and the new questions that arise from the answers. These people have personalities. They have desires. They have old loyalties and new affinities. They bow and scrape with graciousness, and they get angry, and they quarrel. The contours of their attitudes, rising and falling and clashing with one another, can be as dramatic and compelling as any of the actual subjects or discoveries. For a long time, I think I read Plato the wrong way. First of all, I looked for what he had to say. What's the right answer? What's the key takeaway? Socrates is asking all these questions. What does he think? Sure, there are a lot of sides to everything, but what's the right side? Isn't it obligatory to take a stand, to nail down some of these definitions, to do more than just say, well, it could be anything, who knows? If you demand that of Socrates or even of Plato, you will often be disappointed. Several of the dialogues end with no resolution and a kind of explicit agreement among the people speaking that no resolution has been reached. Even those that do have more of a resolution are not always convincing. This is the second way I misread Plato. There were times when Socrates drove me crazy. I always admired him and his death and his reflections on death were very moving and very influential to me. I always loved the idea of him in these engaged discussions over abstract ideas. But I found him frustrating. He is not always purely logical. He seems to be, but he takes the dialogue in turns that I myself wouldn't take. And sometimes his adversary, his conversational partner, calls him on it, and sometimes not. The times when no one calls him on it made me want to throw the book against the wall. How can you get to the truth when you make this kind of leap, Socrates? It's a strange place to be. There's no correct answer. So you think, well, the point is the integrity of the search. But what if you think the search is flawed too? But then I realized those two things, the search for a clear truth, or at least the idea of a perfect search for one, are both the wrong way to read Plato. The pleasure of Plato and the benefit is that you yourself are invited into the text. You're there with Plato, watching this unfold. You're there with Socrates and his conversation partners. I've had this experience at work where I was in a junior position, expected to be in the room with people senior to me, just there watching and taking notes and making sure the senior person had everything that he or she needed. Seen and not heard was my role most of the time. A lot of people at my level might have checked out, and they did check out, why even bother paying attention? Just sit there and get paid. Wait for your turn to be the person in the senior position when you are or will be the one talking and engaging. But I found that the way to grow was to spend the time imagining myself into the conversation. 
I could silently put myself in their shoes, imagine that I was on one side or the other, or even both. If I were him, what would I ask? If I were her, how would I respond? I didn't need to shut off my brain. I didn't need to blindly listen and follow like someone receiving wisdom from on high, or sit there like some well-paid lawn ornament. I could think my own thoughts, reach my own conclusions. It was a great shift for me once I realized how to do this. I learned so much this way. Whenever my boss spoke, I had already imagined what I would say if I were in his shoes. So when he did speak, I could compare my imaginary performance, my decisions against his. If I had anticipated what he then said, I viewed what he said as confirmation. But if I hadn't anticipated it, then I could see how far apart we were. I could ask, why did he mention X when I would have said Y? Why did he make a joke there? Why did he get loud where I would have gone soft? Did his words seem to work? And if so, why? And if it were my turn, should I follow his example or try things my way? It molded me. It gave me confidence that I could take over for him. And as I advanced through the ranks, the bosses noticed this. They realized they could leave things to me that most of the time I would say what they were going to say anyway, and the times when I surprised them were well chosen. I also could see things from the other side's point of view because I had been imagining myself in that person's position as well. I could envision how every conversation would go because I had this model in my mind all plotted out, this ideal form of the conversation, if you will, and I could measure what actually happened with the model, how it played out. I don't mean a perfect conversation where everyone said only nice things and everyone got along. I mean I knew what each person's position was, how they would react to a situation, how they might clash based on their personalities and the strengths and weaknesses of their relative position. And when something went wrong, I could assess it on the fly. Aha! My boss said X, but then he had to scramble a retreat. He should have said Y from the beginning. Or, there we go, she could have said A... But she didn't. She said B. She was hoping that when she said B, he would say C. But instead, he misunderstood and said Z. And now we spent five minutes getting back to C, when she could have gotten us there from the beginning, just by saying A. What's important there? Is it A or B or C? No, not at all. Those things, negotiation positions, small talk, whatever, are so unimportant in the overall picture that I'm using letters to stand for them. What's important is that by the end of the process, I was miles farther along in my education than I had been when I started. Plato is like this, too. You don't read Plato looking for A. You don't get frustrated when Socrates says B. The best way to read Plato is to say, okay, here's Socrates. What does he want and how is he trying to get it? What's he trying to unearth here? Is it the same thing as what he says he's after? Okay, here's his goal. We've identified that. How does he go about getting there? What question does he ask? Is that the question that I would have asked? Why? Why not? Does it work for Socrates? How does he adjust? Is that the way I would have adjusted? What would I have said differently there? Would that have mattered? How would the other person have responded? What if Socrates had asked me that question? Would I have had a better answer? Would I have taken the dialogue in a new direction? And if so... Where would we have ended up? 
anywhere different, or would we have circled back to the same points anyway? And on and on and on. Reading Plato this way, fully engaged, fully immersed, a fly on the wall maybe, but an active, thinking fly is a beautiful experience. I highly recommend it. I guarantee you that you will become a better thinker and a better person for it. Maybe your debate isn't what it means to be a just man. Maybe your debate is whether people on life support should be permitted to decline treatment, or whether pregnant young women need signatures from their parents before they get an abortion. Maybe it's deciding whether a nation should take in more immigrants or fewer immigrants and why. Maybe it's examining yourself to understand why you love something or someone that no one else does, or why you hate something, anything at all. That's the richness of Socrates, or should I say Socrates as he's gifted to us from Plato. He's often wrong, or at least he doesn't get to what's right. As he himself says, his only claim to superior knowledge is that he's better at knowing what he doesn't know than most people. He shows us what it means to think. In some ways, that might be a good place to end this podcast, but all that is a prelude to trying to describe the greatness of Plato and give you a better entree into his works. When I said he has many different voices, you should now have a sense of how wonderful it is to be engaging with him in this way. He changes up the forms of the dialogues, too. You don't fall into a pattern and say, okay, here's Socrates and here's so-and-so yet again. Here's the, the line where they say where they are. Here's the line where they say what they're talking about. Here's how Socrates starts asking the questions. No. Sometimes you hear some background as told by someone who claims he was there. Sometimes it starts right in with the questions, and you need to figure out on the fly who the people are and what they're trying to do. Sometimes a new person stumbles onto the scene and is drawn into the discussion. You're part of this changing world, like a play you've entered. Imagine you're on stage, in a play, and everyone around you is improvising, and instead of trying to make an audience laugh, they're trying to get to the heart of our deepest emotions. Now imagine how much better that is if people are constantly coming on and off the stage, vivid characters, some of them angry, some of them excited, some of them exalted, some of them low, and all of them encountering this enigmatic figure at the center, the wisest of them all, but also the humblest, who hardly ever bathes, who often doesn't wear shoes, a former soldier who was madly in love with a beautiful young lad, the fascinating Alcibiades, wealthy, handsome, extravagant, brilliant, but also tempestuous, irrational, and disloyal. These are lifelike characters on this stage. They have histories. They talk in compelling ways. You want to learn more about them. You want to be inside their heads. It's the magic of Plato. So with all that in mind, Let's run through the works to give you a sense of the breadth and scope of Plato. Remember, I said there are some groupings. The early period includes the Apology, or the Defense of Socrates, which is not a dialogue, but Plato's version of the speech Socrates gave after his trial. The other works from this period include the dialogues known as the Crito, one of my favorites. It takes place in Socrates' prison cell. There's several other famous dialogues, too, including the Ion. These dialogues introduce us to Socrates and give us different sides of his personality. The Apology is an amazing work, along with the Crito, where we see Socrates wrestling with what it means to be a citizen and to obey the laws of the state even as the state unfairly condemns you to death. 
We wrestle with the ethics of questions like whether it's better to suffer injustice than to do it, what it means to have a soul, whether the virtues are the same or have something in common, whether it's better to be good or to do good things, what it means to live well or do well. We also examine gods and poets and what might happen after death. We examine what it means to be an expert or to have expertise and what knowledge itself is. Religion, ethics, morality, psychology, it's all here in these early dialogues. The Middle Period includes works like the Mino, the Phaedrus, the Symposium, which is a beautiful book describing a dinner party where the guests take turns giving speeches about love. The Phaedo is also from this period, and a long work called The Republic. I have a love-hate relationship with The Republic, but it has some hugely famous passages and is essential for understanding Plato. It's probably his most famous work. This is the one where they set forth to discover how a just society would be organized and what it means to be a just man. They compare different regimes and how effective they are and put forward some hypothetical alternatives, with the favored version being one ruled by philosopher kings. This also has some views on immortality, the role of philosophy in poetry, and most famously, the theory of forms. I said I wouldn't go into Plato's philosophy here, but I really should at least touch on the theory of forms, if for no other reason than it's presented in such a striking way. The theory of forms is Plato's theory that abstract conceptions or ideas represent reality more accurately than actual things do. Let's take a dog as an example. If you're trying to characterize a dog, trying to define one, you might start by pointing at a dog and saying, well, that's representative of dogs. It's the very definition of a dog. But someone might say, hang on, that dog is black and it's tall. I have a dog here that's white with brown spots and little runty legs. But it's a dog too, isn't it? And you might say, well, okay, but they both have uh, four legs and a tail. So let's agree that one definition of a dog is that they, they all have four legs and a tail. And someone else might say, I have a dog with three legs but it's still a dog. So where does that take us? How can we define a dog? How can we talk about dogs or dogginess when we have so many exceptions, so many particular examples? Every time we try to nail one definition down, it slides away from us. Plato's idea was that every object in reality has an ideal form. There is such a thing as an ideal form, and the things that we see that all those barking individual representations are just representations of that form, imitations. All those things we see as dogs and call dogs are mimicking the universal form of dog. The form is like a blueprint of perfection for that thing, and everything we see is just an imperfect replica. Or, to put it another way, the form may be a perfect singular thing, but the physical things we see, which are different and which change, are the plural representations of the perfect. And this holds not just for things like dogs or tables or rocks or less concrete things like triangles, but for other concepts like blackness or courage or beauty or love. That's for the philosophers to explain and argue for and argue about. On the literary side, we can look at the allegory of the cave. This is where Plato describes the world of observers, the actual world, our world, us, 
as being like a set of people who live in a cave all their lives, chained so that they can only see a blank wall. The forms, the ideal forms, are behind us, passing in front of a fire. We never see them directly. All we see are the shadows on the wall in front of us. From those shadows, we try to make out what the forms must look like. It's a dramatic analogy. It does the job. It gets the job done. And I'm never sure exactly what to make of it. To be honest, even though it might be the most famous metaphor in the history of thought, it always feels a little strained to me. And it makes me want to turn to Aristotle. But I can recognize a powerful metaphor when I hear one, even if I myself would be a monkey's uncle watching pigs fly before I would ever use one. I'm not mentioning all the works of each period. There are some others as well. The works from the middle period are known for the conception of love, the critique of the arts, a deep dive into the soul, which Plato divides into three parts, the rational part, the spirited part, and a hungry part that desires things like sex. We also see immortality and reincarnation here in the middle period, and of course, the many ideas we've already covered that come from the Republic. And finally, there's the later period. This one looks into the nature of philosophy itself, giving a consideration of the forms that philosophy might take. There may be some critiques of the earlier writings, most notably the theory of forms, there's a delightful work called The Parmenides, which travels back in time and shows an older philosopher refuting the young Socrates, who becomes for once the hapless victim, rather than the merciless and faux-humble inquisitor. In a few of these late works, Socrates is barely there, or not there at all. Why is that? Had Plato tired of him? Had his audience? We don't know. The late works also go through the creation of the universe, the myth of Atlantis, and a second work on government called The Laws, which is not as elaborate as The Republic, but appears to be a more practical attempt. Going from the ideal to the practical, trying to be pragmatic, it's anticipating the move from Plato to his greatest pupil, Aristotle. Or, as Raphael has it in his famous painting, Plato points to the heavens, Aristotle points to the world around him. They're closer than many people often think, but maybe we ourselves need the difference to be magnified in order to see each of their views more clearly. I want to close with an idea about Plato the person and the thinker, and our relationship with this figure as well. He gave us a lot, a seemingly inexhaustible well of ideas that gets renewed every time a new set of thinkers encounters him and tries to build on what he first put forward. The figure of Socrates is as powerful and influential as anyone ever described in words and handed down through history. And yet, there are so many mysteries about these two. Did Socrates really say anything Plato attributes to him? Or is it all invented by Plato, imagined into life? Did Plato agree with Socrates and his conclusions? Or does he undermine them? Is he showing these dialogues to us so that we see the truth in them? Or so that we find the flaws for ourselves and have the truth exposed that way? The answer, I think, is in wrestling with the questions. Just as the dialogues invite us to engage in the discussion, Plato's life and his creativity, and examining what they mean and what they stand for, and what they have to teach us, aren't representative of a set of truths. They represent a set of questions. 
I don't know if Plato intended for his own history, with all its mysteries, to be a perfect embodiment of his philosophy and his philosophical method, but somehow it seems as if that is exactly what has happened, and it's a worthy tribute. He's a man whose monument lives in the minds of students of all ages and living in all periods. The great teacher, the genius, whose legacy lives in the form of a million billion questions. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. Boy, do I hope you enjoyed this one. I'm not just saying that. I hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) Now go read some Plato. You will thank me later. Take two dialogues and call me in the morning. Just what the podcast host ordered. Okay, if you'd like to donate the show, donate to... Donate the show. Donate the show to your favorite charity donate to the show you can do so at patreon.com slash literature or you can leave a friendly little review somewhere like itunes i think we're on spotify now or we will be soon we're still on norwegian radio so hello norway or actually let me look up how to say hello in norwegian so i can be a little more direct to my fans there okay turns out it's hello Hello, Norway. And hello, dear listeners. Hello and goodbye, at least for now. Mike Palindrome returns next week, I hope. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.